Welcome back to the in-laws podcast. I'm Brianne. And I'm Sophia. We're two law students who created this podcast to talk about law school, law talk, and everything in between. Make sure to follow us on Instagram at the in-laws pod and our law school pages at Sophin Law and at Brianne and Law. For this week's episode, we're going to be discussing ways you can explore politics and policy in law school. We received an episode idea submission about personal politics, but we don't think we're the best example of neutrality on this subject, as we're both very vocal about our beliefs. Um, so instead, we'll be discussing opportunities in law school that may help you explore explore your own interests. Personally, I don't think that my politics are really tied to my experience in law school. My political identity was shaped much much earlier in my life than law school absolutely yeah I feel like law school hasn't changed anything about my beliefs I feel like it's just informed my beliefs even more so the skills and the resources to find the evidence for why I've held certain beliefs so I was like it works for me (laughs) that was me in undergrad because I what was really funny about being a criminology major in undergrad was that I, everything that I learned kind of felt like common sense to me. Like you would take a class on juvenile delinquency and it'd be like, oh, like most gangs aren't profit turning and they're not actually engaged in any violent activity. And you're like, fucking of course. Right. Cause like you knew gang members. It's just like, okay, and now you have the evidence to support that belief. And it, I think it actually took me longer in undergrad than I'd like to admit. And it took me talking to one of my professors, um, Aaron Kupchik, who is like a, a specialist in juvenile delinquency. Um, and he would be like, yes. And your gut instincts are really important. And a lot of the time we all know this because of common sense, but like you do the research to prove it to people who don't have that common sense because those are the people that are in power. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Thanks. Faced <laughs> um, with those things before or known people who are facing those things before. And I think um, to me, law school is a lot of, the same of that, like kind of the different aspect of I'm now around a bunch of people who fall into that later category of like, they've never experienced this stuff. They might not have what I consider common sense on issues. Um, And I think we'll get into this later, but that takes up a lot of the more political classes you can take in law school to me. Yeah. I think something that's really important and came out a lot during like 2020 was people were talking about like the moment in their lives or the event in their lives that radicalized them in one way or another, like anywhere on the spectrum, like there was some event or something that radicalized them and led them to some sort of path of like research discovery, aligning themselves with something. And obviously 2020 was like a big time for that. But when people were talking about that, it's like very grown adults. It was like very strange for me because 
when you are in a position where that event happened to you when you were like seven or eight, it's like really weird to see people who are like 27 saying like, oh, like 2020 radicalized me or something in 2021 radicalized me. And you're like, like, I'm glad you're getting to that point for whatever thing, but like, Dale. (laughs) Yeah. I I had a, (laughs) I had a really similar experience when uh, you hear like so many more people are applying to law schools because they've, you know, kind of been radicalized during the COVID experience, um, which just for my personal opinion on that, I don't think that's necessarily the case. I think that people were not able to get well-paying jobs during an emergency situation. So they went to grad school because people always do that in emergency situations where they can't get enough money. Um, but like, yeah, I think, especially if you have one thing that radicalizes you in your life that's very odd to me because I think um growing up poor and then how it's worked in my life is like I was at my poorest when I was not really when I was born but probably when we were like when I was like four or five um and then it's just like kind of gotten better since then experience after radicalizing experience um for for me personally there wasn't any like one thing that changed me yeah anyways we were we said we weren't going to talk about our own personal politics. <laughs> so let's talk about like the political makeup of law schools generally yeah this is something that we've talked about before because our schools are super different on this and this is something that I talked a lot about when I was, when I got to school, I, I don't know what I was expecting, but I came from like an extremely liberal undergrad, like super liberal, super inclusive. Like there were just certain like areas of it that were like on top of their shit. And so getting to law school and like being surrounded by a lot of people that I would consider like moderates, like have no convictions and like either way very strongly was very shocking very shocking to me um I feel like I have the exact opposite experience because I think my undergrad was filled with a ton of moderates I'm very lucky that my individual program wasn't my criminology program that I was in was actually it's considered pretty radical um but like coming to law school there there are more moderates than say like the high school that I went to, but there's a lot of very far left and a lot of very far right people. Mm -hmm. And there's constantly clashing. Yeah. The thing that I, I guess I just like, didn't experience like in my face as much. And maybe I was just, you know, in my own like undergrad bubble where I was very much surrounded by people who viewed things very, very similar to me, but there's just a lot of people who come off very apolitical, whether they are or not. They That's just how they present themselves. And maybe that's a way for them to move through law school easier. Mm-hmm. But I don't know, like in, in one way, it feels like it could be a strategy. But then in another way, I'm like, what do like what do you care about then like is there anything that you like care about enough to talk about or is it just something where you're like I have my beliefs I'm gonna vote my way or not vote my way or like that kind of thing where you keep it very personal 
Or is it just one of those things where you're choosing not to share in a public space because whatever, you have some long-term goal or something? Yeah. And I think it, I think it can be a tactical decision to be like, I want to keep as many good relationships as I can throughout law school. Um, but I also think for a lot of people, I see them being a lot more outspoken earlier in law school. And then I think you just become exhausted um, because it, it really is, at least in my experience, the same group of people who are constantly being like, all right, well, like, let's talk about the actual like racist implications of this case law. Um, and even at times I'm like, I could say something here, but I'm just like way too fucking exhausted to get into it today. Yeah. <laughs> so I can see, especially people who worked in um, advocacy or politics before law school, a lot of them are very gung-ho about it and they're still doing it, but I could definitely see them just being absolutely exhausted. Yeah. It's also hard if you don't necessarily have like a group in your class or in your section who are even willing to speak up because even if they do hold the same beliefs as you and maybe you talked about something and you guys know you're all on the same page about whatever case that you read like if other people are not comfortable saying anything or even if you choose to say anything and you know they're not comfortable backing you up or they've just done it so many times where they're like I'm tired of the same discussion like that, that can also be very discouraging because in a way like you don't always want to be like that person because those people are always known in law school. Like if you're that person who's always bringing up this issue in every single class for this certain thing, it's like people get sick of you. Like no matter where you lie on the spectrum, like people are going to be so sick of you. And it's so unfortunate because then it's like, there's not always people who are going to bring these conversations up or these discussions up. If like others around them are discouraging them from doing it, or if they're not supported in speaking up, yeah, for sure. It's and just like relatedly, I think a lot of the time it's expected of certain people, even before they've made that reputation of themselves, because of usually their race. <laughs> um, yep. Kind of like expected to speak up, and I've heard so many stories of um professors who will like explicitly be like call on a student of color and be like well what do you think about that point and it's like well don't put that on them yeah yeah it's it's the free labor thing like it it really goes back to that for that issue yep and also one of the really weird things about law school is you find people who have identities, but then they hold beliefs that maybe to you seems like the antithesis of what should like go along with their identity or like what you think in your head would like make sense for them to lead to believe. And maybe somebody says of you where you're like, well, like that doesn't fit like my impression of you or like your identities like at all and then you're just like confused because I think we've kind of like as a society made some you know preconceived notions about different groups of people different intersections of people and then when somebody who's in some sort of intersection doesn't say something that you think they would say or have a belief that you think they would have you're like what's going on 
Yeah. Yeah. In one way or the other, like positive or negative, like sometimes you're just shocked by people in general. Yeah, no, I think like there is a very, very conservative person in my class and I took a seminar with him and he like his opinions about drug policy, like shocked me to my core. Like he was further left on some of these things than like leftist at my school. And um, yeah, I think a lot of the time in law school, you really, (laughs) you get to explore like actual political ideologies instead of just being like left, right, moderate. Yeah, 100%. Um, With what I was saying, like I have somebody in my life who I knew they were more like Republican leaning and had like canvas for a Republican candidate for something like very low level, but had canvas for them before law school. And I was like, I really like this person, but like, I really want to know more about what they believe specifically because they might have this title and that might fit what they think they believe or like maybe their biggest beliefs, but it might not necessarily encompass like all the things that they believe in. I sat down with this person, me and my roommate actually both did because we're both pretty close to this person. And we like talked through everything. Like we got dinner, we like sat down and we were like, we really like you. We really like having you in our life. But like, what are your like beliefs on these certain things that are like very important core beliefs to us? And we actually aligned on like so much stuff. (laughs) So after the conversation, I was like, well, why do you like hold this like title then like why why is this like your political like title and it was just like really interesting because some people might have a label that maybe they think best fits them or is like best for in furtherance of like what they want to do but it doesn't necessarily line up with like all of their all of their opinions and that was like a really like interesting experience to have especially with somebody that I already liked and enjoyed being around. And that made it a lot easier to like break down that ideology and then be like, wow, I actually match up on a lot of things here. Yeah. I think that actually relates a lot to the more like political groups in law school. Um, Because if you think of like the political group in law school, it's going to be the Federalist Society. Um, And so many people join the Federalist Society to achieve a goal, right? Like not necessarily because they align with it, but because they know that the Federalist Society has a bunch of resources that can put them in good places. Um, And like, would I personally recommend that? No, I think that it's causing a lot of harm to your classmates and like probably society in general to join FedSoc and give them more of that legitimacy and platform but like it happens like a lot yeah it's really like any sort of thing that it like has a reputation like that like FedSoc Mm -hmm. it's it's almost like committing to a bit in a way and I think that there are are a lot of games like we've discussed like there's a lot of games in law school there's a lot of games when you're working there are a lot of just like socially accepted things within the legal field that you either like really go along with and like gung-ho bandwagon join it Mm -hmm. to either protect yourself or achieve a goal or something like that and 
you almost have to be like very calculated and smart when you choose to deviate from those gains. And bedstock can just be one of those paths that makes certain things a lot easier, but might make other things a lot harder. And you're like choosing which route you're you're choosing to play unless you're somebody who's like very invested in the ideology and all of that but if you're somebody who's like trying to play a certain game like certain orgs will serve you in different ways and you have to decide like which one is going to fit what you want I guess like you have to have that foresight yeah it's so it's interesting to me because so there's the Federalist Society which is typically the conservative political student group um And then there is the group that was started as like a left counter piece to that, which is called the American Constitution Society, constitutional constitution, not sure. Um, And they tend to lean, at least from my understanding, at most schools, more neoliberal Mm -hmm. uh, and kind of like moderate left. And then there's National Lawyers Guild, which tends to operate further left <laughs> and like kind of was not uh, seen as a counterpiece to the Federal the Federalist Society because the Federalist Society, its goal, its intention is to fill federal judicial seats with conservatives, right? And I think the National Lawyers Guild is like, well, this system is shit in the first place and leans more towards like advocacy and movement lawyering and things like that yeah it's also interesting with that too because I think orgs that don't necessarily have like a title that would indicate any sort of political affiliation or any sort of I don't know necessarily like goal in that manner tend to butt heads with those other orgs so even with FEDSOC, even with NLG, like even with ACS, like sometimes outlaws butting heads with FEDSOC. Sometimes like there's like law students for pro-life orgs that's butting heads with like some, with maybe like AWL, like Association of Women Lawyers or something like that. Like there's all this like butting heads within the orgs, even if they're not necessarily politically affiliated. So it's like, while there is that like, I don't know, sense of some orgs are like for this political purpose, but it has this name. Some orgs are just like for affinity groups and people coming together, but there is sort of an agenda there. Like those things just, (laughs) it's cool. (laughs) Yeah, Um, definitely. I think like outlaw for sure, butts heads with FedSoc, especially this year when nationally FedSoc has, um, brought in a lot of very homophobic, transphobic speakers to law schools. Um, and then if one, how do you guys have an, if one, how, Mm -hmm. okay. That's, um, that's a pro-choice, uh, student organization. I think we just started ours very recently. If I'm, yeah, we do, uh, we have a pro-life org, but we don't have a pro-choice org. Oh, you guys have a pro-life award? Yeah. What's it called? Uh, honestly, I think it's just like um, pro-life law students or something like that, or like law students for life, something oh. along those lines. I don't 
I mean, you could have a student organization at UNC Law that I was not aware of because there are so many, um, but I don't believe we have anything like that. We just have FedSoc and then we have, and I want to be really clear not to impute political agendas onto this group, but we have the Christian Legal Society, um, which I believe leans more conservative, but I also know its faculty advisor is definitely not conservative. So I don't yeah. know. We have, we have a Christian society and we have a Jewish society and we have a Muslim society. So we have all three of those. We talked a bit about how there's these political organizations and quasi-political organizations like Outlaw or If One How that you can be a part of. Um, but let's talk a bit about how typical doctrinal legal classes just completely fail a lot of the time on touching on policy in them. I think this really depends on the professor that you have for the class. But especially classes like con law, crim law, property, um, if you have a bad professor, you can go through the entire course just learning like the rules, the case law, and not touch on like how all of this is just like founded on an incredibly racist system, right? very little discussion of policy in some classes. That has not been my experience personally. Mine either. I think some of my professors were actually really good at discussing policy. I think that mine have been too. Um, something that I really liked about my crim law professor, I think he touched on policy from the very beginning, but he also his final was structured very different than a lot of crim law finals where he, we had one regular hypo that like everyone hates, it sucks. Um, but then he would, he does this thing where he um, gives you a situation and is like, imagine you're, you're writing legislation to address this issue and you have to write the statute and explain like literally every single word you used and how that would affect policy and the enforcement of the statute. And I think that is like one of the best ideas <laughs> to put on an exam because like statutory interpretation is really, really important, but it's also like forcing students to learn how statutory language plays out in policy and enforcement, you know? Yeah. Definitely. I think my professors were really good in a different way, not so much from like the statutory perspective, but more so like the application and also like the historical context of when these laws were getting passed, when these cases were going through the courts, like what was the political climate? What is the historical context? And that's something that my con law professor does like an amazing job of. And he just provides like all of this historical nuance when he's explaining cases. And while it's not essential to the final and it's not something that you ever write down and say, well, like, okay, so this judge was beefing with their cousin and that's why this happened. Like he doesn't care about that on the final, but like 
it makes decisions make so much more sense. Like, okay, why was the Supreme Court hesitant to say this about this and give themselves more power? Or why was the Supreme Court like really gung ho about this because this other like branch of the government or this other group was doing this thing? And I think that's really important because when you're looking back at the law and you're like, well, these don't match up. And why is the Supreme Court overruling this if they said this before? And it's like the makeup of the court, like what's going on? And as somebody who has like always enjoyed history, I loved that because it really put things into perspective for me because I was like, I don't really think about all of those external factors when I'm thinking about the law. Like I'm thinking about like what is fair but everything in fairness is affected by what's going on at that time in that year during whatever month like these things were being decided yeah for sure i think um my property professor i'll give her a, a lot of credit for this because she was new to teaching property when i took her and she was very intentional about things like that um and like yeah, some professors are lacking. Like some professors are not putting in that level of effort. Um, personally, I know that sometimes torts will touch on a lot of this, especially when it comes to like calculating the value of a life and the racist past to that, right? My torts professor, we never even touched on like calculating the value of a life. That's not something we ever did. And to this day, I'm like, did he avoid, like, did we run out of time? Did he just not prioritize it? Did he not want to have to deal with teaching this? Like, I'm so confused about it. No, we didn't, we didn't talk about any of this stuff in my towards class. Like none of it, absolutely none of it. And I had a great towards professor. He was very good at teaching me towards. Um, but after I heard other people's experience in torts, I was like, God damn, what else am I missing? I think something that was interesting in, in my crim law class was we didn't focus necessarily on like the historical context or any of that kind of stuff or the political context, but we did focus on certain things in the wording of the statutes. And mm-hmm. I'm thinking of a particular question on my crim law final because we had a case where in our super long hypo, like there was this um, catering company and they had this van and they were delivering food. And then the person they were delivering food to was like having all these issues. And like, did he overdose or was he drinking alcohol on meds? He wasn't supposed to like just all of these factors. So then in the questions, like he would ask, you know, maybe a specific crime, but because of the wording of the statute, like it has to fit a certain definition. So like intoxication, like what does that mean? Like, is it voluntary? Is it involuntary? So all those like little nuances. And then if you read the question and it was like overbroad, you had to be able to explain why you were saying one thing over the other based on obviously like what was in his hypo. And then like maybe later in the exam, he would ask like the opposite or something else. And I think that kind of goes back to like terms of art and stuff like that. Like you have to learn those so specifically so that you can understand the statutes when those statutes pop up that include those terms of art, because otherwise it could go so many ways 
or it could be one of those things where like there's a right answer and it's only this way or there's a wrong answer and it's only this way and you have to be able to know like what those terms of art mean and why they chose them in the statutes to be able to explain your answer or you know when you're in a courtroom and you're arguing something like you have to know what those mean yeah for sure I also think it's really interesting I tend to lean towards let's have all of the hard conversations in class that's um I think it probably stems back to the original criminal law class I took because I took criminal law in undergrad with a professor who was like yeah we're fully like we're gonna talk about everything and it's gonna be uncomfortable and like we're just gonna have to do it because if you want to go and practice criminal law you're going to need this information right like you're need it so it's my job to teach you it no matter how uncomfortable or unpleasant it is for us but I've had professors strategically leave things out that they don't want to teach because it can be uncomfortable is probably not the best word for it but I feel like triggering has become such a (laughs) uh, an old phenomenon of itself um but really like that that's what it is. So like my criminal law professor in law school didn't teach any rape cases at all. Um, and to me, he asked for feedback about it. He's done it both ways. And to me, I'm like, I would actually like to learn about it. Um, and then the class under me, so the current 2L class, that had him were really uncomfortable with him teaching um, the battered wife syndrome case and like exploring domestic violence so in detail in class. So it's just, it's always interesting to me different people's opinion of like what to teach because obviously there are like people, there are conservatives who are like, I don't want to teach critical race theory, but then they're also like leftists who are like, this is too uncomfortable, too triggering to be talking about in class. Mm-hmm. I think we should just talk about everything personally. Yeah. The thing is, I would, I would rather learn it now than have to go on in my career and, and learn it later because I feel like if you're learning everything so foundationally at once, why not just learn it all foundationally at once and have those foundational discussions all in the same time frame so you have that basis moving forward? Like, even if you don't specifically talk about everything in depth, like to be able to touch on those things early on and build on that, I think is a lot more helpful, like career wise especially if you do something like in crim when it's something that you learn in crim and stuff like that. Right. Right. And there are, there are things you can policies you can put in place to try to like minimize the harm. Um, and basically every class I've ever taken professors have given the disclaimer of like, Hey, if you are not able to talk about this subject, tell me ahead of time and I will not put you on call. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I've, I've used that in law school and I highly recommend you using it um, 
you don't even have to explain to your professors. You can just be like, I'm not going to be on call for this case. Um, and even better than that, um, I've had professors who have implemented when you're talking about really touchy subjects, just not doing cold calling, not doing panels either. Just like it's only volunteer for these cases, which I think is just a much better idea. Yeah, I agree. I think it's also important, and that's a large responsibility of the professors to have that foresight to know some of these things like might be better if I just lecture on them, if I just teach them instead of putting that pressure on the students, and also to have the ability to read the section that you're given, like mm -hmm. of 1Ls or whatever, like read like your students in your class, like is this a discussion that would actually be helpful? Like, are there people in this class who might take it too far in one direction or the other, and it will not actually be a healthy discussion? Like, we won't actually get to the policy points that we need to talk about. And I think that that's essential for the professors to know that and to have the experience to gauge their class and know, like, what's going to be helpful and what's going to be acceptable for, like, the actual point that they're trying to get across. Right. I think like at the end, it comes down to how good your professor is at managing these conversations because sometimes professors just aren't. <laughs> and I mean, it happened at, not in my property class, but in a different property class when I was a 1L professor started a conversation that got that got taken way too far and uh, was not able to manage it at all. Not I think it's, it's important for the, even if you are having a discussion, like if a student says something that you as a, a professor and experienced academic know is not a valid point or whatever, like you have to be able to call that out and then let the person, like the next person respond to it. Like maybe they included a bunch of other points that were truly relevant, but if somebody is like I can think of a specific example from my contracts class, like we weren't even really having like a true discussion or like a back and forth type of vibe. He was just kind of asking for thoughts on this case that causes a controversy literally every single year. And somebody in like the front row, like raised their hand and like made this point that was very much not based on the facts of the case, like they were making like a very huge assumption and a very big jump in what they were talking about. And he was like, you need to dial it back. Like you, like you need to go back and like read this section of the case because what you just said is like a really big jump. You made a really big jump in assumptions there. And it's like, how, like how can somebody else even respond to that if you stated the facts wrong, you know? Yeah. I love a professor that's willing to tell people that they're wrong. It's important. Oh, it's so important. I can't stand a professor who dances around people being wrong. Also, just it doesn't it doesn't foster learning in the way that we should be learning. And like, even if you have like very strong convictions about something or whatever, if there's like an objective truth. Like we, we read the cases, like the facts are there, like the facts that are in the book are the objective truth for us. So it's like, you, you can't restate something like that and restate it incorrectly to try and prove whatever point, you know, you're saying in your like discussion bit. Yep. I also think it's so funny 
it's not funny. It's not funny. <laughs> I took family law fall semester of my 2L year. Um, and my professor would occasionally just be like, uh, yep. And, uh, Roe is going to get overturned <laughs> and they're just like very clearly being like, this is our future. This is what it's going to look like. Roe will be overturned. Yeah. Um, and that was just like, I, I, that sucks, right? It's terrible. Dobbs is a tragedy, but like having a professor who was willing to be like, Hey, like we all know the reality of the court right now. And like the political climate of this country and what it's going to lead to. Um, that was like comforting in a way. Yeah. It's, it's nice when people who know a lot and have like years of knowledge on you are able to provide that context even if it's like very depressing in your opinion yeah. but it's it's hard to like receive that news and also to be like especially for me like I was taking con law when it was being decided like it was decided while I was like well it got leaked when I was studying for my con law final so I'm like I learned all of this and the next, the next section of kids that are going to come through and, like, learn con law, this whole section is just, like, wiped. Like, and it's weakened. Like, it's weakened for the future. So it's, like, all of this, like, history, like, this case law, like, all of this that I learned, like, is in danger. Like, it just is. Yeah. But on top of these doctrinal classes, you can choose to take classes that touch much heavier on politics. Um, most of the seminars, mm -hmm. oh, oh my God, I should have sent you this tweet. Let me try to find it. Okay, so the tweet that I saw um, says, one time in law school, a sitting federal judge came to talk about clerkships and told a room of students she would never hire a clerk who had taken a class with the words law and blank in the title. I think about that a lot. Um, so I think of these seminars now as the kind of like law and blank classes you can take, like law and class, law and race. Um, that's like really depressing that a sitting federal judge would say that. Um, but those are the kinds of classes I enjoy most in law school. I'm assuming you probably do as well. Yeah, I agree. I I mean, as you guys can tell, we love talking. Like, we love talking. We love discussing. Like, I, I'm i a very chatty person. I love deep talks. I love whatever. And those type of classes, which my property law class was kind of like this because I got really lucky with my property law professor. And he was just amazing. And he taught things from, like, all of the isms, like everything was thrown in there, like everything, like down to how to incorporate it into zoning. Like we learned all of those things. And I learned so much in that class that is like still so valuable to me. And when you get into one of those classes, like you truly have the opportunity to learn why things are the way that they are. And I think that's why talking about policy is so important because it gives you the why things are the way that they are. 
and like all that history, like all of that, like how did this get made the way it's made? Like that's in policy. And without that context, you're just learning rules that are just so abstract (laughs) that they don't even make sense. Like I genuinely think that learning the historical and political context of these cases helps me understand the doctrinal shit better. Absolutely. And even like at the most like extreme levels of the most horrendous cases that you read in law school, like that context and understanding those concepts and like those terms of art, like that is so important to how you understand the rule at the end. Like I think our our like biggest kind of like hubbub controversy like issue that happened second semester of my 1L when we were in property is we were doing the Dred Scott case, which is when enslaved people were property. And we were specifically talking about when they went from being considered real property to personal property and the reasons behind that and the political reasons and the monetary reasons that that happened. And especially with like transfer of property, like we learned all of those things at once. And somebody in class was like, I don't know, trying to conceptualize it or something, or maybe give context to themselves. I don't know. But the way it came off was not good. And they raised their hand and they said, well, like it makes sense in a way that enslaved people went from real property to personal property because personal property depreciates faster and like people depreciate. And everybody was like, why ever living fuck would you say that? Like, why, why would you say that? Especially because we were learning the <laughs> historical, monetary, like legal in quotations reasons that that was happening, why that classification was changing for literal humans. Mm-hmm. And like the air like went out of the room in that classroom, like out of the room. And everybody was like, no, <laughs> no, 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 no. Oh God. I mean, I've taken a lot of classes, 2L and 3L, that I just feel have been a lot more satisfying when it comes to learning. I took a class called social justice lawyering, um, which was actually a movement lawyering class. And that was just very eye-opening about like the options that you had as a lawyer. Um, Because I think so much of law and even public interest law is framed as apolitical and obviously that is aided by state legislatures refusing funding for any legal aid organization that engages in lobbying right um but like movement lawyering is inherently very political yeah (laughs) very political um And then I've also taken, I took a poverty seminar, which was just about policy, like just about policy. And it was incredible. And one of my favorite classes I've ever taken in law school and one of my favorite classes I've ever taken, honestly, but there you, you have limited options to take those classes, which 
I just, I wish I had more opportunity to take them because we have like a race in the law class and I was never able to get into it. And we had um, a black lives matter in the law class that I wasn't able to get into. And I just wish people are like law school should only be two years. And I'm like, I really wish it would stay three years. And then we would just change things around. So you could take more seminars. (laughs) Literally. (laughs) Seminars are just they're they're so good they're so good also like they're smaller classes like I think at probably almost every school they're smaller and mm-hmm. it's just so much easier to have like a better connection with the professor as well like in the class mm-hmm. and I don't know it just makes things and like the learning environment like so much better so much more interesting so much easier like the discussion flows a lot better like when you're in a big room of like 75 people or something and it's like a discussion-based class and like you don't want to be raising your hand all the time I mean you know everybody's different but like unless I really have something to say like I don't always want to be (laughs) raising my hand if nobody else is In a seminar class, at least at UNC, it's kind of expected that every single person will talk nearly every single day. Yep. Much more collaborative than your bigger doctrinal classes. Absolutely. I mean, the (laughs) seminar I took last semester was only four people, so we were definitely talking every day. I can't even imagine. I'm in like a a much bigger seminar and I'm saying like much bigger. I think it's probably 30 students, maybe a little more, maybe 32, 33. Um, and even that, like people are so engaged, like people do not stay quiet in seminars. And I love that. I love that. I wish more classes were like that. My school also has um, a law and poverty class, but it's a little bit bigger. And I really want to take it because it's taught by my property professor. And I love him. He's literally the best. And property is the class that I 100% talk the most in 1L. Mm -hmm. And I want to get into that class so badly. But it was like impossible this year. Like all of the three L's were taking it. Yeah, that's the same with my poverty class. My poverty class. is taught by um, absolute legend, Jean Nickel. So everyone wants wants to get into it and it's like impossible to get into as a 2L. And it is taught from like five to 8 p.m. And people are like, because he wants to bring in people who actually have jobs to talk, not just like other (laughs) Radical idea, I know. So he makes- Wait till after work. (laughs) I think like 5.30 or- maybe six god I can't remember um it's like a late class and people are like I am willing to be at the school that late because it's it's that good yeah they're just those professors that you know they know you know they have what you're looking for and I think what's nice about a lot of schools probably most schools is the 1L professors definitely teach other things so if you have like a really engaged one-all professor, they might teach something else that you're super interested in and you can continue to have a relationship 
in the academic classroom and maybe they teach something you're also super interested in and that's really cool too yeah I mean my poverty professor was my con law professor um the seminar I'm in now my education law class she was my civ pro professor even just like there are some that I haven't been able to take like I said you just you want to take all of these seminars and it never works out with your schedule but there was like a junk science seminar about like forensic sadosis. And I, I'm like literally obsessed with that stuff taught by one of my professors. And I just, Oh my God, I wish I could take it. And, um, there's a seminar on, um, Japanese internment camps in America. And it's like, God, I want to take all these classes. It's like, can I, can I like redo law school? Like, can I like do another year just to take classes? Like not towards my degree, but like, I just want to take it. Right. Like, let me audit some classes. Literally. Um, but yeah. And then I think you also get the chance to explore policy and politics a lot more in certain clinics and internships and externships for sure. Absolutely. Especially because depending on the school, sometimes the coursework even can be kind of limited. Like, I think it might be pretty popular to have like a legislation class mm-hmm. at some schools where, you know, you get to write legislation, learn about legislation, um, why things are written the way that they're written, that type of work. And then because like we talked about seminars, so it's like specific topics within. And then when you get to the internships, like there are so many different things that you can do with that. Oh, yeah. Oh yeah. Even just like at my school, I'm in a certain clinic and you have to take a course along with that clinic. And the idea is that it teach you, teaches you all of like the skills to use in the clinic. So like writing motions and things like that. Um, but it really is like a deep dive into policy and the more political side of sending teenagers to jail (laughs) yeah I think it's also super interesting like what people choose to get involved in like maybe based on their their background before school Mm -hmm. um I mean like I mentioned before like one of my friends worked in a lot of canvassing like I have friends who worked on like presidential campaigns Mm -hmm. I have friends who like worked on the hill in DC before law school like people do all sorts of things within the political realm, like super broadly before they even get to law school. And I think there's also like a a strange intersection. Well, maybe not strange, maybe it kind of fits, but there's like a a decent sized intersection between people who do social work and people who go to law school afterwards. Like I have a friend who social work undergrad, social work major, law school, and like still might want to just do social work. And I think that's really cool because that is like such a different perspective. And I think those combine very well. Yeah, my, we've talked about it on here before. There is a teacher to law school pipeline and the seminar I'm taking this semester is um, a first amendment in education seminar. And so many of the students were like, teachers, guidance counselors, coaches, and um, even people who are currently working in, you know, like externing in legislation or were there over summer. Um, 
And it's just so much more satisfying because you're just, instead of learning from the teacher, you're like learning from each other. Mm -hmm. Uh, And you get so many different perspectives that are just missing in a normal law school class. Yeah. I think that is like, what is especially hard about 1L is there's actually very little opportunity to learn deeply who your classmates are. And there's very little opportunity for people to talk about themselves in class or even just incorporate their actual own perspectives into the material because cold calling is usually just about the case. Like there are some professors who have the style of like, okay, here's this, what do you think about it? And then maybe you get a chance to explain like how you truly feel about it based on whatever happened in your life or whoever you are. But a lot of the time it's like, okay, tell me the facts of the case. Okay, explain the court's analysis. Like that like that has nothing to do with you. That has nothing to do with how you view the world based on you. Like you just don't get the chance to learn about your peers. Right, right. And unless you have a professor who really is taking the time, like, like my crim professor to every single day, touch on policy and ask people's opinions. And uh, I mean, classic law professor thing to do is just like assign you a position to take and be like, argue it. Um, But like, if your professor isn't making that effort, it's just, completely lost Mm -hmm. absolutely and then like in the assigning position stuff like that can be really hard like that can be really hard for people if they get assigned something that's completely opposite of like their views and like the first example that comes to mind is my roommate did appellate writing last semester and the hypo was about like a prison and their covid protocol And she had to argue on behalf of the prison Mm -hmm. and she's (laughs) not about that. And she wants to be a public defender and it was really hard for her. And even in like what she would have to like say in her oral argument, she was like, I hope I like never have to say like this stuff ever again, because I don't like, I don't believe in what I'm saying, but I have to act like I am to get a good grade in this class. Yeah. And Professors love doing that. They love making you argue something you don't believe in. Yeah, no, there's there's like a lot of opportunities to get involved in politics and not just like the political party way necessarily. But something that's interesting and that I, I didn't really think about very much is lobbyists. And that's something that sort of came, um, I don't know, was discussed in the summer because some law firms will lobby and some law firms won't, but they'll represent people who lobby. And I think that's something that's really interesting because people go to law school to be a lobbyist sometimes, not necessarily to be like a traditional attorney. And I think that's like not a path that people really talk about, or I've seen people talk about. And that's, that's also something that happens. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't know. I don't know personally anyone who's getting into lobbying. I think that's probably if you go to school in DC, it might be a little more, more frequent in your classes, (laughs) but there's always these options. And even, it doesn't even have to be 
lobbying, like a city attorney gets very political. You can write legislation as an attorney. They will stick you in a basement with a bunch of other attorneys and you will be writing the legislation that some politician proposed and didn't do literally any work on. There's a bunch of different opportunities. Yeah. Like there has to be people who are writing municipal ordinances, you know, like at every level of local, state, federal government, like there are people who are writing those things. And just because you're not somebody who's involved in like the state government or the federal government, if you're not in DC or whatever, like there are still opportunities to get involved in that in so many places. Same with like, maybe like more so volunteer basis things like when you are an attorney and when you become established in a certain area and maybe based on location or expertise, like you could be called in as an advisor on something. Like you could be an expert on something. Like you might have like a really large knowledge pool of say like something discrimination in the workplace and maybe there's a bill that's coming up and the legislation is interested in it and they reach out to you and you become like an advisor and stuff like that. Like it's not uncommon for people who are like, especially in like big firms to be advisors in like state government. Yeah. And even, I mean, the amount of professors you have that have written amicus briefs, like Uh (laughs) that's a very political policy based thing. A lot of the time, what I think is interesting you put down here public interest groups that have direct connections to state government. In North Carolina, they cannot work on policy at all and they cannot lobby or the funding from the state will be cut off. Is that the case for your legal aid organization? Y'all are lobbying? I don't think it's necessarily lobbying, but there is a lot of like intermingling and a lot of advising. Interesting. I guess I don't know. I haven't worked at a legal aid. I work with legal aid um, on my pro bono project, but like they're kind of like hyper vigilant about it. Um, And like the, the very real option and like risk you take. Um, And also one of my favorite professors here um, worked with legal aid back before these kind of like widespread national rules went into place about lobbying and back when legal aid organizations could like genuinely make huge differences. Mm -hmm. Um, Legal aid organizations, obviously incredible. They do great work, but um, they really operate kind of at a, I don't want to say a lower level, but it is very individualized. You're doing something for an individual client. You're not making impact litigation most of the time or um, trying to change policy. Yeah. I think it's also one of those games where, you know, you work in something, you become more established. People know you in association with this topic or with the org that you work for. And you just become a resource in that sense for that specific topic. And it's also one of those things, you know, where if you're going to the courthouse constantly for this thing, like, you know, the judges, you know, the commissioners, like, you know, the clerks, like all those kind of things, like 
the legal field just becomes like really intermingled. And then, you know, you're in a position, somebody else is running for judge, like all those things just, they just happen in a strange, strange way. Strange, strange. Yeah. And then, I mean, after law school, there's a ton you can do. I mean, after law school, you don't even have to be a lawyer. The options, like, I, I don't think I truly grasped the options that are available to you when you have a JD. Like, I had no fucking clue. Like, all of the things, all of the ways that you can be an attorney, I had no idea. Absolutely no clue when I got to law school. I, I commented this on someone's video recently. Coming into law school, I genuinely and truly thought that most people were public defenders or like, um, like small. I literally thought people were like public defenders or like solo practitioners. Like people just worked in small firms and just, they were an attorney and they were living their life. That's literally what I thought. Yes. It was like you were either a public defender, a prosecutor, or a solo practitioner doing personal injury law in my brain, personal injury or employment or family. That was it. Um, I just like, (laughs) I think you don't even realize how many attorneys there are involved in literally everything 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 like I had no idea that businesses would acquire legal teams like it's it's something that just literally never crossed my mind I did not think that there would be like a legal team built into so many things like even on a small level like some businesses will have like an attorney like I had no idea that that was a thing that people did I literally I I knew that hospitals had in-house attorneys from scrubs <laughs> I didn't even think that extended to like all businesses I was just like oh yeah hospitals have them <laughs> I had I had no idea like I didn't know what in-house was like no. I didn't know that <laughs> oh I didn't even know that like what I'm interested in doing like tax and accounting stuff I didn't know that those were attorney like I didn't know attorneys were in that no I just thought it was like all the CPAs were like (laughs) there's there's so much you could never imagine which is always like when people ask you as a 1L what you want to do I'm like I just, I, I've stopped asking one else because I just, I don't think it's super productive. Um, and I think it puts more pressure on them than anything else to like stick to what they thought they were going to do coming into law school. We talk about it all the time. Like people change their minds all of the time. A bunch of people who came in thinking they want to be litigators <laughs> turn transactional very quickly. Uh, and like vice versa, but like, The reality is when you come into law school, you only know like at best, even if your parents are lawyers, like five to 10% of the opportunities that are out there. Literally. All right. (laughs) 
that's all for this week's episode of the in-laws make sure to follow us on ig at the in-laws pod we post these full-length episodes every wednesday morning at 7 a.m eastern time so make sure to follow and rate the podcast through whichever streaming service you're listening on um also want to throw in a note like if you guys have episode suggestions like always send them our way we're looking for like a good mix we always want to keep things fun but we also want to talk about important serious very interesting things so roll the suggestions our way otherwise talk to you next week bye bye